Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Johanna Rothman, who is a writer, speaker, and management consultant. Johanna is the author of numerous books, such as Predicting the Unpredictable and Management Made Easy books. Johanna joins us today from Boston in the United States. Johanna Rothman, we're so glad to have you on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here. So I'd like to start off by asking a slightly amended version of my typical opening questioning on the show. So what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, a well-maintained team? So partly it's how the team works together. The more I, I have seen that the more teams collaborate, regardless of their approach. I'm not, I prefer working with agile teams, but you don't have to be literally agile by any book. You, you can just be a collaborative team. The more the team works together, the better the team can maintain itself. For those listening, and I say this as someone who six months ago, I would find myself in a conversation with someone on my team who, because we had brought in an agile coach to help improve some of our processes. And somehow there, even though this employee had been with us for three years, they said, oh, we're doing agile now as like this new thing. And so for those listening, and I, I, I had this weird like reaction to be like, what have I been doing this whole time? I thought we've been doing some form of agile for the past 16 years of having a company. It's so surprising to me that there's some other team that's like, oh, this is a new thing that we're doing. It's like a new concept. And so I was like, oh my gosh, what have I done wrong? So for those listening who may also not know the difference between what an Agile team versus a non-Agile team, could you kind of provide a quick distinction there for us? Sure. So for me, an Agile team is a team that takes on a small amount of work on a regular cadence. That cadence might be an iteration, as in Scrum, or it might be um, every Monday, as one of my flow-based teams does. They work to finish that small amount of work and then release it to the customers or the users or the business, but somebody who will consume this piece of the product and hopefully offer feedback or at least use it, right? So it's this short cadence of taking in work, working on the work to finish it, getting it to done and releasing it. And then with any luck, doing some form of a retrospective on a regular basis. And so those would be some ceremonies around that typically, at least within like a scrum approach in, in particular. You know, I think sometimes people, I, I wonder if they have a hard time knowing that what, what isn't agile maybe is another way to think about it. Like what, why did agile come about? And I know that, you know, we can hear, we've heard people talk about waterfall. Is, is agile a really small waterfall? Hopefully not, but some in some teams it definitely is. In some teams, they they take in the amount of work. Well, hopefully it's a small amount of work, but they do the analysis on all the work, and then they do the design on all the work, and then they do the coding on all the work, then they do the testing on all the work. I mean, that's not my idea of an agile approach. In fact, in Create Your Successful Agile Project, I called that out as a series of mini waterfalls, which is probably better than what they were doing before, right? So for me, I think 
I think that there's several things here. Is the team doing something better than what they did before? And is the team able to maintain a constant kind of flow of work through their system? Is the team able to see if they have happy customers or users? If they are, I'm not sure I need to label what they do. <laughs> I, I might find places where they, I think that they could be more effective, but that's, that's a different story. So as to why we had agile approaches back in the nineties, when all of you people were, you know, younger, <laughs> I can say that younger, um, uh, for anybody who cannot see me, I have the gray hair to prove how old I am. Fine. But back in the 90s, there were a whole bunch of institutions that tried to create phase gates and serial life cycles, of which waterfall is one, so that we would have, quote, some control, end of quote, over the software development process. Because we had very late projects, we had way too many defects, the customers were not happy. Some of us had been saying all along, let's just not have a project longer than six months. Let's not have a project longer than three months. And if your sweet spot in a company is you need three months to start anything, that seems like a lot of overhead. And I bet some of your listeners are saying overhead. Every time we try and, and shorten our sprints, we feel like we have a lot of overhead. That's probably a sign you're doing more waterfallish agile than hmm, agile, agile, I don't know what to call it, more effective approaches. You know, it's interesting to you know that just reflecting on another scenario in the last year, we had a project where the, because we work in a consulting world and so we will kind of adapt different processes, work with whether the clients have their own internal workflow that we're kind of adapting or if we're primarily handling it and we're trying to at least from a, um, from an auto, uh, where our client might be the product owner and they might have some other stakeholders that are involved in the project, they may have their own ideas or what something like agile is and be very prescriptive. Like, no, we need to have like this very strict schedule about things and we need to have consistent ceremonies on the same days. We have other projects where that doesn't seem to be remotely necessary. So, so sometimes some projects feel like there's more overhead because there's more scheduled meetings or conversations that are happening. And I know that a lot of developers are like, if I could just spend more of my time in front of my code editor, I could be more productive than participating in these other ceremonies. I've, I've met many developers that have been part of a process where maybe decisions were happened prior to them being part of it. And like, oh, if I was only in that conversation earlier, I could have helped avoid this problem that we now find ourselves in. So for those listening, which is primarily a bunch of software engineers, what do you say to that kind of like, like make finding value in those types of ceremonies and meetings so that it's not seen as, oh, I have another meeting later today. Well, first of all, don't call it a meeting. I mean, I don't, I don't understand why we, we, if we want to workshop stories or understand the value of something, why don't we call it a meeting? It's not a meeting. It's a workshop. So first of all, at least for me, that totally changes the conversation. Maybe I'm being a little orthodox. I don't know. Seems hard for me to be orthodox about anything. However, if we say 
we have this stuff coming in, which is a discussion of how this product is going to supply this particular value to our to these customers. And we want an outcome of stories that we can feed into the backlog or the iteration or or a discussion of what we need to do for experiments. When I was a developer, I would have killed to have meetings like that. Those are workshops, right? And when I was a developer, I often got uh, a document that said, implement this. Oh, fine. I'm trying to remember, remember now thinking about even just like a calendar invite. Are those coming across and like from a UX perspective, are those coming in as new event invites or meeting invites? Like what's the vocabulary that gets used and shows up in people's cal- calendars? But I know that we've at least tried to be very see them as these, you know, ceremonies that are our workshops, like, no, we're grooming the backlog. We're doing, you know, it's not just like, all right, so what's the agenda? Like we have activities and we have a, a, a task at hand that we don't think is best done in, in a silo where it's like, okay, you go do that one. I'll take this one. And then we'll all come together and hope this all matches up. It's like, at some point there needs to be a meeting of the minds and such. Given that we're in the middle of a pandemic and it's January, 2021 at the moment. And do you think that I've noticed that there's people, a lot of uh, murmurs in the community about move, wishing and desiring for more asynchronous communication. A lot of teams are probably living in Slack on a day in and day out basis and, and Zoom meetings or what have you. What's your take on that? Do you think asynchronous is a, a worthwhile thing to kind of explore more for teams? Oh, yes, absolutely. I find that when, when we frame our thoughts and put them down in writing and say, let's use our asynchronous time to think about things in advance. So I happen to be a big time extrovert. If a, if a thought is in my brain, it's often out of my mouth without any nanoseconds between. However, many, many people in software development are not extroverts. I, I always thought I was weird. I mean, I am weird, but for many other reasons. And when, when my colleague said to me, I really need to think this through, I didn't understand for the longest, longest time what they actually meant to think before they spoke. <laughs> that, to me, was a foreign concept. So it's still, I, luckily, I, I do live with some introverts, so I am more familiar with this. But I find that if we, if we write things down, and we don't have to write them down in extensive detail, in fact, if I never saw a UX description in writing, again, I would be a very happy woman, right? That's where paper prototypes really hit the mark. But a description of what problem is it that we want to solve? And who do we want to solve this for? And what alternatives have I, as the product owner, already considered? Or I, as the designer or the architect, already considered? And why am I concerned about one, two, or three? Or if I don't have three options, why don't I have three options? I mean, those are all, and this can be bullets. It doesn't have to be a thesis. In fact, it should not be a thesis. I'm talking about a few paragraphs for any given problem. And if then if there are, if there is a deeper discussion, everyone is prepared with these three paragraphs. I think that's some really good advice there. And thinking, 
there might be very well be people out there that are like, no, I do that in Slack still. I'm able to put a longer form of thought into something before I submit a message. Oh, let me just stop you right there. Yeah, the Slack business. Slack is not for needing to think about communication. It's the wrong place. People don't always respond in threads. People, and you can't find the thread, even if you have paid for the premium version of Slack. So we discussed this three months ago, right? I I have caught myself saying this. We discussed this three months ago. It's in the Slack. Well, I dare you to go find it. I dare you. No. So Slack is really good for a variety of in in the moment conversations. And, it, and if we use Slack for pointing to a place where we want to have, this is not really documentation, but documentation of our discussions and our theories and our discussions of the problems, putting the pointer in the Slack, excellent. Yeah, I have no problem with that. But this business of always saying, oh, just go to Slack, that's like going to email. You can't find anything in your email. You can't find anything in your Slack. Put it in a place where the project or the product has a variety of shaped organization of the discussions that we need to have. I think that's going to be a lot for people to uh, to reflect on it and, and I think there's a lot of, I, there's a, it's interesting because I think the, uh, I'm personally struggling with Slack more and more so the last several months now. And, and like, this is a desire to, cause I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm not working day to day and, you know, in code with the team, but I'm still like lightly involved on some, some projects at times where I get called in to help. And usually it's more of like a, Hey, can you help me with this type of thing? And like, it's usually like, oh, here's a quick little request. Maybe I can quickly point them to some documentation or to example of something we did in the past. But sometimes it's very much like, oh, this short conversation just turned into like an hour back and forth, waiting for the next person to reply for you. Someone else jumps into it or did someone else already help you address this? It's not really always super clear. So we've been trying to come up with like little workarounds for like if someone has like a channel, like a problem, they're a technical thing. They're asking other people on the team if they've seen something like this in the past, like being able to scan Slack to see, oh, that was actually resolved for that person, rather, rather than needing to like, do I got to look in the thread and see 30 comments to see if that person question has been answered successfully yet? So we're trying to figure out how to work around some of those kind of open issue things. It's one of the things I never liked about email as well is that there's like a, there's no closure usually to any sort of conversation. It's just like at some point someone stops emailing the other person in a thread. I very rarely do you see like, this this email thread is complete. We're done. We can neither of us need to respond to this. At some point, you just stop. So there's always like open conversations sometimes that re, you know percolate back up and stuff like that. And Slack is just like an amazing amount of that. So, but anyway, so I, I was curious about the asynchronous versus real time thing, and I, I'm not surprised you have a pretty strong opinion about that. <laughs> yeah. So well, let me let me add just one more thing. I am not a fan of internal product documentation in the coder tests. I find that that gets stale very, very fast. I am a fan of internal product documentation that talks about, I should say, problem documentation, where we discuss the problems and the solutions that we thought about and what our decision was. That That's very brief. It's not 
and it's not um, increment that's countered by one. Do not ask me how many times I saw that when I was coding. Yeah, it, a ridiculous number of times. So I'm not. I'm talking about our reasoning and reasoning about the problem and keeping that somewhere so we can point other people to it. I find that that's useful and we might have our pre-conversation discussion preparation, which is asynchronous, then discussion in the moment, which is synchronous. And then hopefully somebody has taken minutes and written down what we decided. So uh, knowing that a lot of the people listening are, I'm assuming a large majority of them are probably ICs, which individual com contributors, if for those maybe listening aren't familiar with that. But so we have all these individual contributors, typically software developers working on teams, and they might be thinking long term about their career. And one of the things that I, reason I wanted to bring you on the show is because you've written a, a number of books over the years, but you've recently released a series of books called Management Made Easy book series. And I wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about for those to those engineers and kind of help them think. Because I think a lot of people just assume that at some point, because you you do something for such a long time, you are then at some point going to manage people that do that exact same type of work in the future, whatever, regardless of the technology that we are using. So let's say people are thinking like, oh, once I'm beyond a senior software developer, maybe I'll start managing a team or something. Do you think that really great individual contributors are destined to become great managers? Oh, no. Only if they want to. So I, I really, so our, our, I'm working on another presentation about career ladders because we are not very good at career ladders that allow people to broaden their skills and broaden their influence over the code and the tests and the product without having to also move up in the organization. And the problem is when a great technical person becomes a manager, First, it's hard to see that it's actually a, a career change. What made you great as an individual contributor or as a technical leader are not the same skills as a manager. So they share some of the same skills. You still need to be able to talk with people. However, the focus when you're in, I really hate saying individual contributor. I'm going to call it team member. Okay, because we are talking mostly about Agile teams. Okay, thank you very much. But when a great team member says, I'm going to lead and serve the people by helping to create the environment in which they can be successful, that environment is very, very different than the environment for creating a great product. If you think of a Venn diagram, it certainly shares the team environment, but it, there's more to it for a manager than there is for the technical team member. So I really want to think about how do we provide options for people? Because if a great technical person becomes a manager, the team now has lost the great technical person. And if nobody explains, here's what you do as a manager, the team also does not have a manager. That's true. And I'm not talking about directing the work. This is leading and supporting the team. I think there's probably many people that aren't even sure whether or not they have an effective manager at the moment because 
because they don't have a lot to compare to, right? Like depending on where they're at in their career, if they maybe they've jumped around at a bunch of different companies, you know, maybe they just haven't found a good place for them yet. But for those that might have only been at a couple companies so far in their career, or maybe even one, you know, their manager might be someone that was that previous like really reliable software developer on their team, and now was promoted. You know, I'm air quoting promoted there to a management level position, and now oversees other team members on you know they might still or may not still be contributing to code themselves as well. So I think that's always the thing. But like, let's, I'm going to assume that there are many people listening right now that are like, oh yeah, my manager was a developer. How do I know if they're a good manager or not outside of, it's, it's all I know. So what do you believe are some ways that people can kind of help identify if they're actually their managers, an effective manager for them at this point in time in their career? So how often do you have a one-on-one with your manager? I I really like to say if a person does not have a one-on-one, at least bi-weekly with their manager, hmm, probably not enough time to build that relationship. The, The manager's relationship with the people that they lead and serve is about understanding the various signals in the organization. The one-on-one offers an early warning sign. So it's really helpful to have a one-on-one at least every two weeks. I mean, if you really have an agile team, do you need a one-on-one every week? I don't know. Yeah, that's an it depends. Another question is, are you ever surprised by feedback you get from anybody at all? And if you're surprised by feedback you get from your manager, you are not having enough one-on-ones. If you are surprised by feedback you get from other people, your manager is not creating the environment that would allow people to offer you feedback on a more regular basis. Not so just so you can receive it, but that you also learn how to offer it. And if the manager is not figuring out how to offer coaching to the people that they lead and serve, I'm not sure that the manager understands the value of coaching in in the organization. So I see a manager's role as creating the environment so everybody can participate fully, right? They They can do the best job they know how, that people are able to create psychological safety among themselves with feedback and coaching, and and that the manager kind of represents the rest of the organization to everybody in the team. In those one-on-ones, like what sort of topics are ideal for one-on-ones? Like, like sort of like, as I know, there's a lot of ways that those can come about. I've, I've heard of teams where like a lot of their one-on-ones are used with their managers to talk about project problems less. And I've always kind of wondered about that. I'm like, that that's nothing wrong with that, but are you having, are you, having a conversation about some of those other things you're touching on, like getting feedback on things that are more like, how are you working with the team or with your clients and the feedback that's coming you know, around within the organization to help that person grow? Are you having conversations about their career growth or not, you know, with one way or another? And so do you have a strong opinion on how, like, what sort of things should or shouldn't be outside of a one-on-one? Well, I have a strong opinion about any, everything. So yeah, you are not surprised. I worry If a manager feels the need to have a person report on project work inside a one-on-one for a supposedly agile team, because the project progress or project work should be in 
the team meeting, the stand-up, the walking the board, the whatever. I mean, there might be times when that's reasonable, but I worry about that. I would much more prefer to go meta and say, how is, how is a team working as a team? Where do you want to go in your career? And you might not ask the career question every single week or every other week, right? But if you're not asking the career question once a month, you are not learning what suggestions you might offer this person for mentorship, for reading, for practicing. One of the reasons we see so few really talented managers in in software as an industry is because it's so hard to practice management. And I would really like people to practice management. And I, I'm not talking really about a role play, although a role play might be fine. I'm really thinking about how can you offer someone a management role that includes facilitating one-on-ones or, or facilitating other meetings and give them practice so they can see whether or not they like it. Interesting. Do you have... Have you seen that? What are some ways that you've seen that actually implemented on like how can, you know, these individual, not, I'm not going to call them individual contributors the rest of the episode, I promise, uh, team members, how, how do you provide them? Like I know that there's like certain type scenarios where like say you might have a technical lead on a project and then that, but that may not be the same as managing people. It's more of like that's a maybe of a, a helping drive conversations or decisions forward for a particular project. It's more akin to being Maybe, maybe not though for every team, but I, I do wonder sometimes that there's a, what are some of those like tangible ways that you could allow people to have some space to experiment like that? And I know like what we've done is we've made, you know, we've, we have a consistent, we we have interns coming into our organization on a regular basis. So every quarter we have a new batch of interns that come through from a coding school. And so we try to have people that are on our team help oversee them, whether they're, you know, upset, you're, like you're their buddy for the next six weeks, but We've never kind of framed it around like, okay, you're their person for like one-on-ones because we do set up one-on-ones with them. And those people said there is some of that. And that is career fostering, especially for interns, whether we're not going to hire them. So we're like trying to help them get ready for going out and looking for their first job at post boot camp or something like that. And so, so that's one way I feel like my team's been able to do that, but I'm trying to think of like other ways that we could do that. But it's not so much reliant on someone being so early in their career versus like knowing that there's a lot of other things that pop up in people's you know, a couple of years down the road. So that's an excellent way to practice. And I would actually ask, I mean, if people are interested in management, when I was leading and serving a team, I actually asked people, what do you want to do? Um, and when they said to me, um, I want to be a manager, I would actually say to the rest of the team, so-and-so wants to practice her one-on-ones. Is it okay? Who is willing to have so-and-so practice her one-on-ones with you? I mean, it can be, quote, just, end of quote, practice. And people, I mean, when it's peer-based, you might actually find that your peers offer you insight that you did not, you would not receive as a manager. And what's wrong with having one-on-ones at any given level, right? You can ask for a one-on-one. It's not going to be the same kind of one-on-one as a manager does, but having a private conversation 
where you might ask for coaching, you might ask for feedback. It doesn't always have to be you as a manager offering. You can say, I would really like help with so-and-so. So as an example, I got an email last night from somebody who um, wanted to chat with me in real time to build a relationship. I happen to be kind of busy right now because I'm, I'm on these podcasts. There's all kinds of stuff going on right now. And I said, I'm happy to do this after, you know, the middle or late of February. I'm happy to do this then. I'm not, I really don't have time. If you need me before I can make 30 minutes, but I really don't, I don't have the time. And he, he responded and said, okay, you know, one of those, you could read between the lines an email where he said, okay, fine. So I actually asked for coaching from somebody else who knows him. So we are not, we are peers, right? This other guy, I'm, he's not my manager. I'm not his manager, but I said, I really need some help here. I think I just deflated this person's balloon. That was not my intention. How do I make this right? Is there anything I should do? Anything I could do? When you ask for that kind of feedback in a one-on-one, you're asking as a peer and you get to practice one-on-ones. We'll be back with our interview with Johanna in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Johanna Rothman. I know that it's not like teams don't talk amongst themselves, right? Like, you, you know, as someone that runs a business, I know that my team talks about things, you know, they'll have their side conversations and, and that's great. And, you know, I don't want to discourage that. But I also know that there's there's been times over the years where I've heard, like, oh, this one person keeps bringing up this issue. And like, I'm like, why don't they just talk about it with the person that they're, you know, and I've often wondered, I'm like, it's one thing to go to someone and to like, sometimes we just need to vent, right? And like, so I, I get that. But there's also the, uh, if you're on the receiving end of that venting, do you have any strategies for people that might be like, oh, there's someone or someone on my, someone on my team that will regularly come complain to me. And I'm like, okay, I don't necessarily agree with everything that they're saying, but, but they've somehow, because they've listened, they find themselves in that role of now being on the end of a venting session every once in a while. Do you have any, any suggestions for them on how they could maybe reestablish that relationship with that person so they could maybe turn that into more of a coaching and or some other opportunity to improve the conversation so that it's not just a kind of one-way blast of information, I suppose? Yes. So the first question I have is, and this is, I'm not going to ask you, but yes, the first question I would have is, is this a triangulation where person A complains about person B to you. And so the venting, yeah, every yeah, I certainly vent. I understand that. But if they consistently complain, person A consistently complains about person B, that's called triangulation. I would then offer meta feedback or medical well, first I would offer meta feedback. I realize that person B irritates you 
under these conditions. Because I've heard you say to me on January 1st, January 3rd, January 5th, right. The last two weeks, we've had several conversations about person B. Would you like some assistance or support in framing your feedback to person B in a private conversation with person B? So now you're offering coaching, right? So you've, you've provided the meta feedback. Here's what I noticed. And now you offer coaching. Would you like some practice preparing your feedback for person B? I mean, I, I don't think I've actually ever said, I don't want to hear about this anymore because that's not really helpful right? That's the person, person A has a problem. This, his or her problem is with person B. How do we solve this problem? But very rarely is in my job as a manager, uh, to go to person B and say, person A doesn't like you. (laughs) And that's not useful, but encouraging the conversation and the relationship I might offer in the spirit of the rule of three, I might actually offer, here's how you might consider if you want me to facilitate or be in the conversation to smooth the way. We would have to talk then about how we introduce my participation as either the facilitator or the smoother, because this conversation is really best as a two-person conversation, not a three-person conversation. And you might say, as I speak to person A, that you need me for moral support because you're uncomfortable offering this feedback and you decided to ask for help. One of the big things we totally miss about working with other humans is the fact that we need to be vulnerable for them to be able to trust us. So the more vulnerability we show, the more they can trust us. It's so uncomfortable in the middle of it, I cannot tell you but it's, it's also necessary. It's very true. And there's, I think there's a lot of good advice coming out of that. And I hope people listening can go back and reflect on that, especially like thinking about that triangulation kind of challenge that pops up in, cause I've definitely been on that, that, that manager at times where someone's like, I am just really struggling to work with so-and-so. And I'm like, well, have you talked to them about this? And like, how are we going to, but I don't feel like I've always had the tools. And, the, and I think there's some, sometimes, if, especially if I manage person B, then it's like, well, do you, are you asking me to just relay feedback? And then that's, someone said this, and it's like, that's not remotely, and it's like, well, managers are, are supposed to have the unfun conversations, right? But I'm like, I feel like everybody's responsible for having maybe those co- uncomfortable conversations, So because you're the ones that need to work together. But sometimes there's like, well, you hired that other person, so it's your responsibility to remove that barrier for me. And so I think that's a... An interesting challenge, I think, for all three people, especially that there's a lot of conversations about person B and they don't get to have any input whatsoever. And the person B may have their own concerns about person A. So it's not always one directional either or mismanage expectations somewhere along the lines. You know, another group of people that I want, I know I touched on it a little bit was the tech lead type role. And or so maybe and or maybe they're part of what I would call the old guard because they know a lot about the the technology platform and you know the software application that's been built and why things are because maybe speaking to the earlier point that not all the rationale is documented but it's maintained in a few people's head and so those people are always away or always around to some in some capacity to help resolve problems or at least provide guidance to other people and the for those people that might 
be waving their hand like, yeah, that sounds like me. And I've, I've not taken the time to do a lot of that documentation because I didn't really know how best to do that. Or we made those decisions six to 10 years ago. I don't even remember all of it. But if you ask me in the moment when you're looking at something, I might be able to like pull that information out of my brain and quickly respond to it. So maybe those people haven't taken a vacation in a really long time. So because I know that one of the myths in one of your books was about I am too valuable to take a vacation. What is your kind of response to this? So I would suggest that if you are the expert, never work alone. Never, never. Because otherwise, you're right. You cannot take a vacation. At some point, we will be traveling again. I'm not sure when. I'm not going to predict that. But it's um, we will be traveling again. We need vacations to unwind. So why not pair with somebody? Literally pair, right? Two people one keyboard. Yes, it's a virtual keyboard right now, but pair with a person. And if you are the expert, you don't get to put your hands on the keyboard, right? Really to think about how can I support this other person learning what I know? How can I offer them either questions or, or maybe suggestions, but not direct their learning so that we can we can, I can help them learn what I know, even if I don't remember that I really know it. <laughs> so yeah, because we, we cannot change the past. There's something interesting about that. Uh, I don't do time travel. I think you don't do either. So we can't do time travel. So how can we find a way to create a better environment? And I think that pairing not um, even taking a vacation and letting the entire team learn without you, but not not ever working alone in the code or alone in the tests. I I really like to think about quote banishing end of quote the person to another project or team or project in the organization, and that way the entire team has to figure out how to learn together. If we don't offer the team a crutch then the team has to figure this out. So I am of the age where a number of my colleagues from years and years ago are starting to retire and they're not going to be around. They don't want to be around. They want to they want to do something else and we need not only do we need to let them do something else. We need to encourage them to do something else. It's time for for other people to take over this work. It's interesting. I'm, I'm reminded of a, there was, we had a client project in the last few years where someone was, where the company called us and they're like, all right, we have a small team of developers. And one of them has been with the organization for like 30, 40 years or so for, for quite a while. And they're, they could be retiring at any point, but they couldn't because they felt like they would be letting that company down because so much of the information was in their head and they had been really, they've been really struggling to figure out how to onboard new people to the technical team because if, if people weren't meeting their expectations or standards, then they didn't stick around in the company very long. So they were, they'd been really struggling to bring in new people. And so they contacted us to come in and try to help address the situation. We're like, this is a really messy situation where it's a, this person's concerned about their legacy of what they've been able to do and pass it off and worry that it's all going to fall apart. But they've been the ones kind of duct taping and keeping this thing running for, you know, several decades now. And 
we have new people coming into the company where we're like, I'm really struggling to get that person to kind of get out of the way. And so it's, it's, it's interesting, not because they didn't say like, they're not valuable, just like, but it, it was just a very challenging thing for them to figure out. Like peop, that person doesn't seem to work really well with other people. We need other people, but how, what do we do here? And so I still don't know that they figured that out. Um, we weren't successful helping resolve those issues ourselves in the pandemic hit at the same time. So in those types of situations where you, you know, you're reflecting on people that are retiring, what are some ways, you know, like, like the idea of banishing people. And so you kind of, kind of force the issue to some degree. And, and I started this conversation off talking about like wanting to take vacations and not making yourself available, I think is an important part of getting time away from people. And I think it's really easy for, you know, people to be worried like, well, if something goes wrong, you know, text me or give me a call. And that's not super, no, don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So let me talk a little bit about the reward system. The more you reward people for their individual contribution, especially as it relates to their legacy, the more they will do that. If you don't want them to, if you don't want them to kind of keep this legacy all in their in their hands, in their quite capable hands, you have to reward them for integrating other people into into the team, for integrating other people into what they know, for helping, for supporting people through their learning curve. You have to change the rewards. If you want different behavior, you have to change the rewards. It's not like we're Pavlovian dogs, but we we will absolutely work to what we see as rewards. And if we see rewards as supporting other people, we will absolutely support other people. But if we see the rewards as uh, Johanna, you did a great job on this project. Now do it again for that next project. Am I going to bring other people into into my work? No, because I got rewarded as an individual. So this is why the reward system is so important for agile teams. And especially if you have a long time expert who is ready to either move on to another product, project, team, retirement, something else. It's not just taking a vacation. It's really thinking about how do we unwind the reward system so we reward the behaviors we want. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com slash referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. I'm having this moment of reflecting on my own patterns and I enjoy debugging problems. And so when they're, when the team is struggling with something, I love to jump in and help solve that problem. I get that quick fix because most of the work on my to-do list is 
long processes that are it's going to take a while for those things to have payoff it's like i don't even always know if they're the most important thing i should be working on or not you know but when i see those little things those are like a little fire pop up i'm like ooh, i can go over there and help put that out because i i've done that before and i you know and so i get that quick little you know hit of adrenaline or endorphins or whatever excitement it is and then it goes away really quickly and then i'm like and then i'm always like ah oh, i shouldn't be doing this because i'm preventing the team from figuring some of these things out themselves because i can't and then sometimes I've tried to have conversations with the team about this. I'm like, okay, you can come to me and ask for my assistance at times, but I'm trying to like get better on my end and being like, how do I not come in and just like point them in the direction necessarily, but also try not to be over prescriptive because sometimes I get feedback that when I try to come in at a, at a certain way, I'm like, well, I might have ideas in the back of my head, but I'm not sharing them because I'm like, come up with something yourself. And they'll get frustrated if they think that I know a way forward that I'm actually asking them to do or like am i just asking them to hopefully or am i helping navigate them without actually being very explicit and so i got feedback in like literally in the last week that if there's a conversation about this like things where it's like if you have ideas robbie please share them but there's also part of me that's like it might not be the best way to do it and so the way i know how to do it isn't necessarily the way we should be doing it as a team and so i'm trying to find that balance there do you have any advice for me i suppose in front of everybody else and this is me trying to be vulnerable on how to work out that thing of wanting to fix something because I enjoy it, but also not wanting to micromanage everyone on how they should approach these kind of debugging type challenges that they, they're faced with. So the, here's where I really like the rule of three. I am extremely good at inflicting help. This is why if you've ever been in a meeting with me, you, you might've seen me put a hand over my mouth I'm trying not to talk, or I sit on my hands and I close my eyes. I will do any number of things to prevent me from speaking because I, I see the answer. I could help you. I first try and say, what are three options? And I try and ask the team, what have you already done? Because I want to understand your context, not because I'm ridiculing you, right? I ask this out of curiosity. And then I say, so you've tried these three, four, five, six things. And if they've only tried one thing, I get to say, what two things could you try so that you have three reasonable alternatives? Because often this de this kind of a debugging problem is a symptom of not understanding the problem enough. And this is not because we are not smart. We are totally smart, right? We are capable of amazing things. It's about our understanding of the problem as opposed to our understanding of the solution. So I often ask, what three things have you considered? What experiments have you run? How many other people have you brought in to help understand this problem? Where are the various triggers for this problem? What are the various consequences? So I do a lot of, hopefully, facilitation about the problem itself rather than going to the solution. Because, of course, I also know the solution. Yeah, fine. Then often, I, I'm a big fan of talk to the duck. So if people have not yet talked to the duck, I ask them, have you talked to the duck? Right. Talk to the duck is an old debugging technique, which says, tell your problems to the duck using your words. Words have to come out of your mouth. This is separate from thinking. This is wording. So it's 
It's at volume. You don't have to yell at the duck. I got a, I got a penguin up there. <laughs> that, oh yes, you have a duck behind you. Excellent. So, okay. Talk to the penguin. It's fine. So, but the idea is to help trigger various problem solving modes rather than jumping in with the solution yourself. And that's when I realized, I think a lot of this management and senior leadership, technical leadership stuff is going meta. How do we talk about the problem itself, not the actual problem? So the more we can go meta, the more we can support our team. And I think that that's what, well, that's certainly more of what I want to do. That might be what you want to do. And that, that allows us to contribute in ways that I find still satisfying, but not telling people what to do. I like that. I'm in this, the rule, the rule of three, uh, three is, is quite helpful. And thinking also that question around what have you already done here? Um, Cause sometimes I'll find myself joining a conversation to assist. And then I'll be like, well, what about this? And they're like, oh, we tried that. That didn't work. And then I'm like, oh, if I should have asked what they'd already tried. So then, cause then it's almost like in a weird way, kind of, pointing out something like, oh, yeah, we're not, we're not dumb, Robbie. We know, we know, we, we know what we're doing. You hired us to do these things, right? So good things for me to reflect on. And I hope the audience gets some, some, find some good value out of that as well. So I want to ask a couple of quick class questions for you. One, you know, let's assume that there's some people out there listening who feel like, you know, they're listening, listen to this episode and they're thinking, okay, maybe I want to rethink my career goals to think whether or not I want to go into management or not. And most of my conversations with my, my own manager to date in our one-on-ones tends to be project related. And I'm, we haven't really gotten to a habit of talking about career growth or those types of topics. Any advice for them on how they could help improve that next one-on-one they're about to enter in? Absolutely. Set the stage for your one-on-one with your manager. Say, hi, manager, in email, Slack, whatever. I would like this as our agenda for our next one-on-one. And first on the agenda is a discussion of my career goals, because I think I want to go into management. I want to know what opportunities we have here. I want to know if I think of a rubric, what is the rubric for a great manager here? How, How can I tell? Do I, in my case, I did not ask this question, but I should have. Do I have the interpersonal skills necessary to be a good manager? Because As I like to say, I did not get into software because I had great interpersonal skills. I got into software because I really love solving problems with computers. So, yeah. And I, I think there are many people like me. So put career, set the agenda, put career discussion at the top and make sure you have that discussion first. If your manager says, I want to discuss the project first, you can say, I'm worried that our 30 minute time box is not going to be enough and my team understands the project. So I would really like to talk about my career first. So I'm not suggesting that you be insubordinate. I'm suggesting that you create a way for people to come together around this particular issue. Excellent. I think that's some really good advice for those listening on how they can help set up and as you said, uh, set the stage for their next one-on-one with their, their, you know, their manager. And a couple of questions I always like to ask people. One, 
what non-technical slash non-software, non-self-authored book do you find yourself recommending to people most often in the industry? Oh, non-software? Okay, you really got me with that one. Well, let me talk about change a little bit. Because I find that Esther Derby's Seven Rules for Change is not, I mean, Esther is in the industry, but I find that her book about change applies at all levels. So that's not specifically software. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Yeah, I'll include a link to that. Seven Rules for Change. Yeah, I really like that book. I've been spending a lot of time, as you are not surprised, reading about managers and management and organizations. Bob Sutton's The No Asshole Rule. Yeah, definitely read that. I have a slight tendency to be a jerk, so I read that book uh, periodically. Anything by Weinberg, because Jerry Weinberg wrote a ton of books, and while they are the context of software, it's not specifically about how to write code, how to write tests. It's about how to think, right? So all of his books are about how to think. Well, I'll definitely include links to all those for the for people in the uh, the audience there in the show notes. So with that, uh, where can listeners best follow your thoughts on management online? So everything is at jrothman.com, J-R-O-T-H-M-A-N.com. I'm probably not as active as I should be on Twitter because I have work to do. (laughs) But I'm on Twitter at Johanna Rothman. I'm on LinkedIn, Johanna Rothman. I'm kind of everywhere as Johanna Rothman. Well, I'm hoping to at some point maybe get you back on the show. So there's definitely a lot of topics that I wanted to get into with you. And there's only so much time in the day. So we will definitely have you back at some point, I hope. So thank you so much for joining us, Johanna. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks for talking shop. Thank you, Robbie, and I would love to come back. 